Hi everyone, my name is Samantha Mills and I'm Marketing Manager for Sujeti UK. I'd like to welcome you to part two of our Mobile versus Web Apps podcast. I'm here again with Andrew Fullen, our Mobile Subject Matter Expert. In part one, we discussed at a high level the difference between designing and testing for web and mobile applications. In part two, we will go into more detail about things like CPU usage, battery life, best practice for testing app updates and the importance of trust and keeping things simple. So, hi Andrew, Uh, just to recap part one of this podcast, if you had four or five key things to tell people who are designing for mobile rather than web apps, what would they be? Thank you Sam, yes, Um, keep it simple, don't clutter the screens with information or anything like that, less I think is best in all of these situations, but you can get people to pass in a lot of information, but really if you don't need the information, don't capture it. The phone itself will help you from your marketing, your advertising, and your tracking sort of perspective when it comes to testing that. But for the user, they just want to be able to do the very minimum amount of stuff. If you put in lots of bells and whistles that don't add to the experience, the users don't tend to like that. The device ranges that we have to test with, um, Apple is probably the easiest for us to actually test with, and it makes the designing a lot easier because there's only a few sizes. I only need to worry about a couple of versions of the operating system when it comes to testing. doesn't mean I have to cut corners because it's very easy for things to go wrong on the apps. And the more things that go onto apps that are maybe running in the background, you have to be more and more careful with what you do. Even just something that's a tiny possibility can suddenly scale up to a lot of people who could be affected by it. Now, we have to sort of deal with the fact that there will be people who will have disabilities who will be using our applications. You have to understand that. And it can be quite challenging to sort of try and test a phone with the mindset of somebody who can't see or can't hear. All the little cues that you sort of expect to be there, you're having to ignore. And sometimes we have to deal with specialist organizations to help us on that because it is quite challenging to be able to do that. Um, it has to be readable. Not everybody has 2020 eyesight. Um, I know I don't. But what we do have is a lot of young developers, and often their eyesight is quite good, and they can read something. But we have people who are in the 80s use our app, and we have people you know, from 16 upwards who use the app. So we have to cope with lots and lots of different things. And it has to be done in a way that we don't exclude people. You have to deal with everybody who wants to sort of come and interact with you. And that's something that is important for us. Some things that we haven't had to test on as much as we used to think we were with things like telephony. We don't really worry about how the cell phone network works. We've reached the stage now where I believe we can trust the cell phone providers. We can draw a line like we used to do in the early days of the web, saying once it landed on your computer and your system, that's where you took over worrying about your testing. And it seems to be the case for mobiles at the moment. That may change. Things that we do have to check for, though, are if somebody gets a message comes in, a tweet, a notification, or they, they pause the music or they play the music to make sure that the apps continue to work, things like that. Um, device ranges on things like Android are more challenging, but even so, we found that we can get most of the coverage on a relatively smaller set of devices. One thing to be aware of is that also it changes almost on a month-by-month basis. The Apples used to have an absolute dominance on everything. Now Android brings a lot of traffic in, far more than it used to be, but it's fragmented. So Apple puts out an update to its operating system within three months, 75% to 80% of people have upgraded. Android brought out KitKat, 
and it's now hitting the 20-25% more nearly a year later. In the meantime, you've still got people who are using 2.3 and all of the different versions of 4. All of the different sort of levels of software that the different vendors have put on board have to be taken into account as well. But I think more important than those is the different screen sizes. Those tend to show a lot of the issues for us. Giving one small example, Sony and Samsung both make good phones, but the way colors look on the two phones is radically different. Sony prides itself on its realistic colors, and yet when you put a Sony phone next to a Samsung Galaxy showing the same red, green, blue values on there, the colors look very, very different. But when you compare side by side, it does become something of a challenge. And the other thing that we sort of learned is that automation is an interesting journey. We started making some progress on there and seeing some quite useful benefits from it. Certainly from the regression point of view, for the first iterations, it's more challenging. And this is one area where Android actually has the advantage. Apple is much more protective. It locks it down and requires you to go through its Xcode platform and have a Mac plugged in if you even want to sort of try and automate against most of your devices or you have to encode other libraries into your software. We've started putting libraries into your software just to allow the testing. How valid is your testing going to be if that code doesn't go out like that? So those are some of the things that we have to consider. There's probably a list as long as my arm. <laughs> I'm sure there is. And what about resource usage, battery life? What would you say to people looking to address those? I think it depends very much on what you're actually doing. There are and have been some real cases where some of the apps that have gone out there, not from our client, have been real battery hogs. There's been some radio ones that have gone out there on, I think, the Google platform that were re-enabling themselves every fraction of a millisecond, with the result of which they were really eating up the battery. I found that if during the normal day of testing, the phone's battery stays the same all the way through before and after I have the app on, I don't really worry about it too much. I will occasionally bring up the battery, check it, make a note, a couple of hours later come back and say, well, it's gone down 10% in four hours. That's pretty good. You know, it's better than I manage on my phone when I don't have it. Yeah. So I don't worry about that too much, but there will be some apps if you're doing things like a mapping app, for example, where it could be quite intensive. Certainly the apps that I'm testing at the moment don't rely on GPS. Um, we removed that because the only people who actually used it were the retailers to see where the rivals were. Um, but that was actually quite resource intensive because it was using GPS and mapping really does drain the battery. The good thing about most of the phones is they are quite good. If your developers follow good practice, and most developers do, they'll write the app in such a way that when it goes into background mode, it doesn't sort of use very much in the way of resourcing. And one of the things that we sort of encouraged and worked with our suppliers on is that they actually pretty much suspend the app and completely restart it when the user brings it back to the foreground. And that actually saves us a few things in testing because what we were having to do is always make sure that the very latest data that we were pushing out to the client was there. And that's actually quite difficult to do. You might have to get the app to continually refresh and pull your web server and pull down data. And there's always a bandwidth cost and there's a cost to people who are actually using it on their phone. But as the amount of time that people spend in it is relatively small, what we can do is if they suspend the app and then they bring it back to the foreground, we completely restart and bring the data down there. We still have fallback situations where after five minutes of inactivity, it'll go and refresh the data, for example. But we don't do it all of the time now. And that's actually been a great help for battery life. It's sort of thinking more about how the people actually will use it. So if they're only using it once a day, 
it doesn't matter about what it's doing in background, shut it down. And when you then restart the next day or four hours later, people will understand that it's going off to get the new data. And I'd like to touch on consistency um, as well. Obviously, within the app, it's quite important to have consistent error messages, buttons, look and feel, that sort of thing. How would you kind of go about making sure that they were all consistent? It is very important to do that. So when we get involved in testing, our clients are very good. They produce wireframe of what all of the screens are going to look like. So we come into it where there is already a very strong brand and a whole range of icons and images and other promos that are already very well established. So we can rely on the sort of style bibles that they have for that. The other thing that we can do is we try and keep the different platforms as close together as possible. So we realize that there will be differences between Android and Apple, between this, a very small Galaxy 8 versus something like Samsung X5. Roughly the look and feel, the layout, we try and keep to be the same. And we actually had some pain on that where we recently took the Apple version and upgraded it to the new designs of the Android version, which were much more modern, much more engaging. And yet a lot of people were sort of going, mm, we like what we used to have. But we now have them so we can pretty much test, look and feel, and the user journey side by side on the different platforms. We try very hard to keep the messaging identical between the two platforms at times when we can't. But we do aim for consistency of message. What we're trying to ensure is that the experience will be the same, that it's recognizably the same brand. And we'll go through and we'll click through the same journeys and make sure that the experience, look and feel, is the same, it's engaging, it flows, that the times between them aren't different. Because the last thing we want is someone saying, well, my Android phone is five times faster than your Apple phone when I'm checking this sort of thing or looking up this sort of thing, or I get a much nicer looking screen than you get. We, we don't want people to worry about their phones. We want people to be concerned about Okay, so, so um, moving on slightly, what approach would you recommend our listeners take for making updates to their apps, and how much testing would you carry out for each new update? It varies. I mean, we're, we're still learning what, what is the best way. Some people advocate a small number of changes on a fairly regular basis, and some people prefer a much larger update on a less frequent basis. I used to be more towards the large update. Now, from the way I'm seeing and from the interactions that we're getting with users and the feedback, it seems to be small incremental changes seems to work best for the users rather than changing things radically overnight. If you add in a small new feature, that seems to work better. Because sometimes there is just a need to sort of throw out everything, start again, put out the new version of the app, and put out a new experience that absolutely wows everybody. And we are seeing new technologies coming out all of the time, which do change how people will interact with them. And sometimes there is no way but to completely radically change things to take that on board. So it's probably going to be yes and no as the answer, I'm afraid. The big ones, we have to do a lot of testing. But even on the small updates, it's very easy with the sort of um, tools that are used and the libraries that are used in apps for a tiny little change to break things. I've seen it on this particular client and elsewhere, where what looks like an incredibly innocuous change can have a catastrophic failure further on down the line. And the only way to do that is make sure you know exactly what you should be testing, that you have detailed documentation of what you should be testing, really good test cases and user stories, and it's time-consuming, but you need to be able to walk through them. And you, you can make savings of automation. There are tools out there that work very well for being able to sort of save these times. 
I have one example which I've worked on worth taking what took me four hours to do manually. Okay, there was a number of days and weeks of learning the particular tool, but I can now run this particular test in 30 minutes. I can plug the device into my computer, set that off, and in the meantime, I can be off doing something else. The other thing that that sort of automation approach can be useful for is it shows if there's been any other changes that weren't documented. And with the best will in the world, things will change unexpectedly. Things will be in a different alignment, or some colors may change, or a bit of text may change. And that can sometimes fill the automation. And it's a good way of just forcing the tester to look at their scripts, make sure that the test pack that they're using is up to date. And there are some tests that we don't do anymore. As we gain trust in an app, you can cut down on the number of iterations of testing that you need to do. One thing that has borne a lot of food for us is to test early. So before we start the formal testing, to have arrangements with the um, suppliers where we go in, we get feedback and sort of say, well, look, if we're doing this, we have to be logging some errors. Let's address this so when we start the formal testing, we're in a position that we can go through it really quickly. We build up confidence. We shift a lot of the defects away from the user acceptance stage, away even from like, the system test stage. And with that, we start producing better results. We start building up the relationships with the suppliers. And they understand that they can trust us and come to us and sort of ask us questions. But you're having that dialogue, and it's really important. Yeah, of course. So, obviously, it's been really interesting talking to you today. So, to just sum up, what would your three key tips be for mobile testing? Um, trust. If people trust your app, they trust the information that you give them, they trust the relationship with you. That leads into better sales, better engagement, and better retention. And it's so much easier to hold on to a customer once you've got them than having to go out and get a new one and cheaper. And people will appreciate you for doing that, I think. Um, don't be afraid to try changes, I think is probably another thing. There will be some things that you will try which will look great and won't work. There will be other little things that you do which you don't even think are worthwhile and yet people love. And I think keep it simple is probably the other thing. Don't overload people. It's not a desktop. Okay, brilliant. So thanks very much, Andrew. Um, I think that brings us quite nicely to a close, really. If you, uh, as our listeners, would like to know more about how Sujeti can help you to deliver a high-quality experience across your web and mobile apps, please visit www.mobiletesting.co.uk. So finally, on behalf of Andrew and myself, I'd like to thank you very much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye.